All right, I'd like to invite you to, to open your Bibles, to turn to 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to be rereading this morning the same portion of text we looked at last week and completing our study of this passage, beginning in verse 18 and working our way down the page to chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 1. I'll begin reading this morning in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And thanks be to God for His inspired and inerrant word. We observed last week that in spite of the chapter break at verse 31, this entire section of text contains a single coherent argument from the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking to the church about the so-called wisdom of men and the so-called foolishness of God. Paul is adopting in these verses the language, the perspective of a non-believer in order to empty the Corinthians of their worldly wisdom and to demonstrate the glorious truth of verse 25 that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What seems to be weak and foolish from the perspective of the non-believer is actually a demonstration of God's matchless wisdom and power and authority. And that is the main point that Paul is driving at here in these verses. Now, if you've been following along in our series on 1 Corinthians to this point, you'll be aware that the larger issue Paul is dealing with in these opening chapters is a sectarian spirit that's entered the Corinthian church. A church that's beginning to divide up into little factions and cliques. 
men and women who are pledging their allegiance to favorite teachers like Peter or Paul or Apollos instead of demonstrating their ultimate allegiance to the Lord Jesus in union and communion with one another. These Christians who should be fighting side by side for a common purpose and mission have instead begun to fight against one another. And Paul is now pointing them to the root cause of the disunity and strife, a worldly form of wisdom that is taking the place of true wisdom from God and in the process is destroying the church and ruining their witness for Christ. And so Paul is tackling this issue of wisdom and folly from three different angles in these verses. First of all, focusing on the foolishness of the evangel in verses 18 to 25. Secondly, by demonstrating the foolishness of God's election in verses 26 to 31. And finally, by highlighting the foolishness of God's evangelist in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The folly of God's evangel, the folly of God's election, and the folly of God's evangelist. Last Sunday, we'd spent our time together looking at the foolishness of the evangel from verse 18 to 25, or to put it another way, the foolishness of the Christian proclamation about Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verses 18 to 25, Paul sets up a number of different contrasts we talked about last week. There's a contrast between the word of wisdom in verse 17 and the word of the cross in verse 18. There's a contrast between those who are perishing in their sins and those who are being rescued from their sins, verse 18. There's a contrast between the things this fallen world considers to be weak and foolish and the things that God considers to be weak and foolish, verse 25. And the great irony underlying all of these things is that the scandalous, foolish message of Christ crucified is the very thing that God has sovereignly ordained to bring us into a right relationship with God. A remarkable plan that you and I would never have dreamed up on our own, but yet a plan that God designed in His infinite wisdom so He can be perfectly just and also the one who justifies the ungodly. This is a plan that satisfies the justice of God against our sin so that we who believe can be recipients of His mercy and His grace. And so we learn in verses 18 to 25 that those who are perishing in their sins, walking on the broad road to destruction, will see the gospel of Jesus Christ as a foolish message that appeals to foolish and ignorant people. We also learn in those verses that those of us who are being saved by God's grace will cling to the cross as our only hope and will view the cross as the most precious and the most costly gift that God has ever given the human race. The gift of His only begotten Son who came into this world to live the perfect life that you and I cannot live and to die the substitutionary death on the cross for anyone and everyone who would ever trust in Him and believe in Him alone for salvation. Paul points out, first of all, the foolishness of the evangel in verses 18 to 25. But in verse 26, he shifts his focus from the folly of the message to the folly of the people God has chosen and called. The foolishness of the Christians in Corinth who are being saved and transformed by this message of the cross. Let's look again in the text at verses 26 to 31, where Paul will now speak of God's foolishness in calling these people. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 26 contains an important command for these Corinthian Christians to consider their calling, and that instruction immediately raises the question of what calling Paul is talking about here and what calling he is asking both them and us to consider. If you've been tracking closely through the opening chapter of this letter, you may have noticed the little word call or calling has been used a number of times by Paul, and here in today's text, God's calling of the believers is directly linked to his choosing of the believers, as we see in verses 27 and 28. Going all the way back to the very first verse in the epistle, we observe that Paul introduces himself as a man who has been called by the will of God. And if you know a little bit about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, you'll be aware that, that Paul's call to ministry as an apostle is closely linked to his call to salvation. In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that Paul was a religious man, but also a violent man. A man who was on his way to persecute and imprison Christians when God stepped into his life and intervened in the most intrusive and dramatic way imaginable. Striking Paul blind for a number of days. Speaking to Paul in an audible voice, changing his heart completely, commissioning him to a new mission and a new purpose in life that would be for the glory of God and the good of his fellow men. This was the call of God on Paul's life, God's sovereign initiative to transform a bloodthirsty terrorist into a blood-washed pilgrim. An effective, irresistible call that transformed Paul into a brand new creation in Christ. At one time, this man was a hater of God. He was a hater of the cross, a man who was perishing in his sin and on the road to hell. But on that day, God stepped into Paul's life and everything changed. He was transformed from a hater of the cross to a lover of the cross. He was transformed into a man who would spend the rest of his days on earth proclaiming the word of the cross to the ends of the world and pouring out his life as a living sacrifice to God. And this is how Paul identifies himself. This is how he introduces himself to the Corinthians as one who has been called by the will of God. And then in verse 2, Paul goes on to tell them they too have been called, that God has called them to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The word call appears yet again in verse 9 when Paul reminds the Corinthians of the purpose for which they were called. They were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord and therefore they were called into fellowship with one another as members of the same spiritual family. And finally, in verse 24, Paul refers to, to Christians in the church as the called ones, those Jews and Gentiles who've been brought by God's grace to see Jesus Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's repetition of the word call throughout the opening chapter is critically important because it helps us understand what he is talking about here in verse 26, this command for the Corinthians to consider their calling. In the context of this chapter and the context of Paul's theology, it's clear that he is speaking about a sovereign, effectual call to salvation and to service. This is not a call that comes from the mouth of the preacher. It's not a call that comes from the mouth of the evangelist when we share the gospel and call people to repent and believe. 
This is the sovereign, internal, effectual call to salvation that comes through the Holy Spirit and changes the heart of man. Paul tells the Corinthians to consider their calling. He is commanding them to consider the call of God that brought them from spiritual death into spiritual life. To consider the call described for us in 2 Corinthians 4, where God speaks into the darkness and the depravity of the human heart and commands the lights to come on. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These Corinthians had been graciously called to salvation. They'd been supernaturally recreated in Christ Jesus. But along the way, worldly wisdom had crept into their hearts and had begun to influence their way of thinking. You see, some of the Corinthians had forgotten that their call was a result of God's unmerited favor and not a result of their own good works and worldly wisdom. Some of these Corinthians had started to think that God's call was a result of something good or great that he'd seen inside of them. Some glimmer of faith in the heart. Some good work that he knew they'd one day perform. Some special talent or special ability he knew would be a great asset to his kingdom and to the ministry of the church. Worldly wisdom was infiltrating the Corinthian church and some of the believers were thinking about God's call in an unbiblical way as though God had called on the basis of something good and desirable that was inside of them. When you really stop and think about it, it's not hard to see how this could happen. Because that's the way the world around us operates and that's the way that we often operate in the world. For example, when you apply for a new job and drop off your resume, you do so in the hopes that the employer will be impressed with your skills and your experience, that he will see something in you that he doesn't see in the competitor, and that he will choose you for the job. Or in marriage. I think every couple would would admit they chose their spouse because of something good and attractive they saw in that person that they did not see in somebody else. Or in the world of pickup sports out on the playground, eventually everybody learns that the most athletic kids get picked first. The least athletic kids get left behind. That's the way the world around us operates. It's what we're used to. It's what we know. And because this is the way the world works when it comes to choosing and and calling, we may be tempted to believe that this is how God chooses and how God calls that God's choosing, that God's calling is conditional, that it's done on the basis of something good that He either sees or foresees it in me that He doesn't see in somebody else. And if we follow that line of reasoning to its logical conclusion, salvation becomes a matter of human works and human merit and not a matter of grace alone. Worldly wisdom would lead us to believe that God chooses men and women on the basis of something good that He either sees or foresees in them, But God's Word teaches us differently and reminds us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. Unlike you and me who tend to choose and select on the basis of something good and attractive we see in someone, Scripture teaches us God chooses and calls His people in spite of what He sees. It's the exact opposite of what we've been led to think. You know, this is one reason why this doctrine of God's sovereign, unconditional call is rejected by so many people, both inside and outside of the Christian church. It's a doctrine that goes completely against worldly wisdom, a doctrine that tends to offend our human sensibilities. 
God's election seems completely foolish to the natural mind. And that's one of the reasons Paul raises the issue here in 1 Corinthians in the context of a discussion on wisdom and folly. We naturally assume that God chooses people the way we choose people, but that's not the way God operates. It's never been the way God operates. You know, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses spoke to the nation of Israel about the unconditional nature of God's election in a passage that parallels the one we're studying today. And here's what Moses says to Israel. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now listen to this part. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. If you or I had the opportunity to choose a nation to represent us, we would choose the nation that had the biggest army. We would choose the nation that had the best land and topography. We would choose the nation that had the greatest art and culture. But that is not what God did. God did not choose the nation of Israel on the basis of anything good He saw in them, but rather Deuteronomy 7 tells us God chose Israel in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their liability. He did not choose them because of their national greatness. He chose them in spite of their weakness and insignificance. And according to the Apostle Paul, the same thing is true when it comes to God's calling and God's choosing of Christians in the New Covenant. He does not choose us. He does not call us because of something virtuous He sees in us. Rather, He chooses and calls us in spite of our weakness, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our imperfections that He knows are there in our hearts and our lives. You know, for a sinful, imperfect, flawed person like me, that's very good news. Hope it's good news for you too. Listen again to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. Consider how well it resonates with Moses' words to the nation of Israel. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. What a comfort, what an encouragement that ought to be to all of us, friends, to know that God doesn't just focus His attention and His love and His grace on the wealthy and the powerful and the intelligent and the popular and the beautiful, but that God is pleased to choose ordinary people like us and to use ordinary people like us for His glory. If you study the Scriptures carefully from cover to cover, you will discover that God has a long track record of doing exactly that. Choosing to save and choosing to use the very people that this world likes to reject and to overlook and to trample on. You know, Paul is writing these words, at least in part to encourage members of the Corinthian church who were looked down on, who were despised because of their humble standing in Greek society. Some of the members in this church were impoverished. Some of the members in this church were enslaved. Some of them were uneducated. Some of them had very little to offer in terms of worldly wisdom and worldly credentials. 
And Paul is writing these words to encourage the lowly Christians and to let them know God has not overlooked them. God will use them to accomplish His purposes. But on the other hand, some of the members of this church were becoming puffed up with spiritual pride and were starting to think that God set His love on them because of the great and desirable qualities that He saw in them. And so Paul is now puncturing and deflating the Corinthian ego and he's reminding this church of a sobering and a humbling truth. The reality that we are really quite an ordinary bunch of people by the standards of the world. A motley crew to say the least. He's reminding the Corinthian church God did not choose them because of how great they were, how wise they were, how influential they were, what wonderful skills and abilities they could contribute to the kingdom. God chose them in spite of themselves. He chose them in spite of their sin, in spite of their weakness, in spite of how low and despised and insignificant they were. These Corinthians were boasting and bragging, competing for prestige and power in the church. And Paul is reminding them, you guys have nothing to boast about. You guys have nothing to brag about. If you want to know why God chooses the people He does for inclusion in His new covenant community, why He so often calls the very people that this world rejects and ridicules, the answer is given to us in verse 30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have been chosen for one reason and one reason only according to Paul's teaching in the passage. We have been chosen because of Him. And the reference to Him in verse 30 can only be a reference to God. We're Christians because God in His sovereignty looked down on us in mercy and grace. He made a choice in eternity past to set His love upon us and to adopt us into His family. And then at the right moment in His unfolding plan, He called us to salvation through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we would see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and we would turn to Christ by faith and we would believe in Him and we would live our lives for His glory. As Ephesians 1 puts it, we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. Paul is encouraging some of the downtrodden Corinthians here, but he is also putting some of the proud Corinthians in their place. He is deflating their swollen ego. He is reminding them God's election and calling is unconditional. You know something, brothers and sisters of Rosedale Baptist Church, the same thing is true of you and of me today. Not many of us are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of us are powerful. Not many of us are of noble birth. But here we are, a beautiful family, a diverse family, ordinary, everyday people from different backgrounds, different walks of life that God is using in our city, in our time to shame the wise and to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in his presence. You know, brothers and sisters, if people in this world mock you for being a Christian, if they insult you for believing the Bible as God's inspired word, if they treat you as someone who's ignorant and foolish and backwards, rejoice and be glad, for there is nothing new under the sun. The same God who chose the weak, foolish Corinthians has chosen you and me to the praise of His glory. Jars of clay filled with the priceless treasure of the gospel earthen vessels raised up by God to show that the surpassing power belongs to Him and not to us. 
And so we can truthfully and joyfully declare with the inspired psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory. Back in the second century, a pagan philosopher by the name of Celsus mocked and demeaned the Christian community just as many intellectuals mock and demean the Christians in our modern world. Here's what Celsus said. Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible, for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anyone is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated of persons. They are like a swarm of bats and ants creeping out of their nests. They are like frogs holding a symposium around the swamp. They are like worms convening in the mud. What does Paul the Apostle have to say about insults like this that are rooted in the wisdom of the world? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast. In Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus, who is Himself despised and rejected by men, prayed to the Father in heaven and said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. You may wonder today why God arranged things the way He did, why He chose to accomplish His purposes and His plans in a way that totally cuts against the grain of human wisdom and human convention. Paul's answer here in 1 Corinthians could not be more clear or straightforward. He chose the foolish things of the world to reveal the absolute folly of man's wisdom to humble human pride and human arrogance into the very dust of the earth. God's purpose in choosing the most unlikely, the most improbable of people to populate His kingdom is to eliminate from our minds and from our hearts and from our lips every form, every shred of human boasting and human pretension. We read in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Our sovereign God chose to save the weak and the foolish and the despised and the lowly so that He alone receives the glory and salvation. So that Christ alone is seen as the one who has become wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, whenever we are mocked and despised and demeaned by the non-believing world, let us respond in humility by giving thanks and praise to the One who called us by His grace in spite of our weakness and our sin and our unworthiness. And let us as Christians consider it a tremendous honor to go outside of the camp with the Lord Jesus bearing His reproach. For didn't Jesus Himself say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And on those occasions, when you are tempted through spiritual pride and self-righteousness to believe that God is pretty lucky to have us in His kingdom, that God chose and saved us because of something we could contribute to Him, 
Let's allow Paul's words in this chapter to deflate our ego and to humble our pride so that we will boast in Christ crucified and in nothing else. We've considered so far in our text the foolishness of God's evangel, the foolishness of God's election, and now Paul the evangelist concludes his argument in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, by getting personal and by sharing his core convictions about the ministry of preaching and gospel proclamation. And let's just read those verses again. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's words here in the first five verses of chapter 2 are really an expansion of something he's already said back in chapter 1, verse 17. You recall that verse says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You've already mentioned a few times in previous weeks, the ancient Greeks in Paul's day were great lovers of oratory and rhetoric and public speaking. They tended to gravitate towards anyone who had unusual abilities in this area. Unfortunately, this is one of the issues that was causing dissension and division within the Corinthian church. A contingent of the church that loved the eloquence of Apollos and despised the plainness of Paul, even though both of these men were proclaiming the same gospel message with the same gospel motive. Pastor Paul, Pastor Apollos were not the least bit interested in competing with one another, but in spite of that, they were being compared to one another by certain members of the church. And some of the members of the Apollos fan club were more concerned about the preacher's ability to wax eloquent, to use flowery rhetoric, than they were about the actual message that was being proclaimed in the pulpit. As Paul puts it in verse 17 and 18, they were pursuing a word of wisdom when they should have been pursuing the word of the cross. They were preoccupied with the outward packaging and the external flair of the messenger, and they were indifferent about the content of the message. The Apostle Paul recognized this danger. He understood this part of Greek culture, and he was determined from the outset of his ministry never to allow allow his preaching style to upstage the message of the cross. Paul was determined never intentionally to use the pulpit and his speaking platform as a means to show off his learning or to gain popularity or to gain power and prestige in the church. That's why Paul tells us in verse 2, he made a deliberate conscious choice to preach the Word of God in such a way that the attention was focused on Christ and the cross and not on the pulpit ability of the preacher. Brothers and sisters, it is so important to understand Paul's goal in the ministry was not to become a celebrity. His goal was not to attract followers who loved his preaching more than they loved Christ. Paul's goal in the ministry was to declare the word of the cross as plainly, as simply, as straightforwardly as he could, and then to get out of the way so that the glory of God could be seen. Just like John the Baptist before him, Paul's desire in his life and ministry was to decrease, to fade away into the backdrop so that Christ would increase, so that Christ would receive all of the fame and all of the glory that he deserved. You know, a man with Paul's ability and gifting could have very easily filled an auditorium 
Paul could have built a large, a large flashy ministry on the foundation of personality and pragmatics and techniques and gimmicks. But Paul understood a ministry like that might win converts to the preacher, but it would never win converts to Christ. And so Paul made this deliberate decision to die to himself, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And at times, Paul even allowed his weakness and his fear and his trembling to show in the pulpit ministry so that the Corinthians would know and believe in Christ, that their belief might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What a marvelous example Paul is for me as a pastor. For every other minister of the gospel. Here's a man who died to the impulse to pride who built his entire life in ministry on the foundation of the cross. Charles Spurgeon once said, The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher, otherwise men would be the converter of souls. Nor does the power lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted. We might preach till we exhausted our lungs and died, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. And thank God for that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged this morning. It is not eloquence. It is not intelligence. It is not rhetoric that God requires from you and me. What God requires is humble obedience to open our mouths and to declare the wonderful, powerful message about Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. You don't need to be an apostle. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a seminary graduate to tell lost people about Christ. All you need to do is to open your mouth and to share the word of the cross in all of its simplicity and beauty. And as you and I are faithful to do that, to share the message of the gospel with the non-believers that God brings into our lives, we can be absolutely confident the Holy Spirit is speaking to His chosen ones and that none of them Not a single one of them will be lost. The Apostle Paul was not afraid, he was not ashamed to appear as a fool for Christ. And neither should we. Because the God that we serve is pleased to use the foolish and weak things of this world to confound the wise and the strong. And His sovereign purposes will prevail. Amen.